This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Hello. I'm going to talk to you about the semi-conservative replication of DNA. Not so much about the technical details, but about how Frank Stahl and I uh, ended up doing the experiment that showed that DNA replicates by the two chains coming apart, each making a new copy, and then you get two, each of which has one old chain and one new one. It's hard to know where to start any particular story, but let me start with the publication in 1953 of the paper by Watson and Crick. There were actually two papers in Nature. The first was about the structure, which was based on model building, and a little bit of information from X-ray diffraction. The X-ray diffraction certainly did not tell you the structure, it told you something about the repeat distance along the helix. It told you that it was a helix and very little more. The model building was model building. So the structure certainly wasn't proven. This was a proposal. And many people didn't believe it or maybe didn't even pay any attention to it. The second paper proposed how the molecule might replicate. The two chains would separate. Each would guide on the, its surface the formation of a new chain and so you end up with two double helices. Each one has one of the old chains and one brand new chain. That's called semi-conservative replication. At Caltech, Max Delbruck, who knew Jim Watson, was in correspondence with him, uh, was pessimistic about this replication scheme, pessimistic about semi-conservative replication. The chains were round, round each other, so to get them apart, unless you break them, you'd have to unwind the basic double helix to get the two arms separate. Max thought this would be impossible, hydrodynamically impossible. And so he proposed that maybe the two chains separate by a system of breaking every several uh, nucleotides along the chain. And he and Gunther Stent published a paper which proposed three different methods for DNA replication. Semi-conservative, as Watson and Crick had predicted. Conservative, in which at least conceptually, maybe there was a way that a double helix could guide the formation of another double helix just like it nearby. And so you'd never have to separate the chains at all. You'd have a brand new double helix and a completely old double helix, and that would be the active replication. And then dispersive, the third way, break the single chains, separate the pieces, and then put everything back together again. Um, I visited Max in his office. I was in chemistry. I was the student of Linus Pauling. Max was over in biology, and he told me about this problem. And it occurred to me that maybe one could do an experiment to find out the mode of replication of DNA based on the use of heavy isotopes. I wish I had time to tell you about why I thought about heavy isotopes, but it did have to do with taking a course, which was a piece of luck, uh, Linus Pauling's course on the nature of the chemical bond in which deuterium and hydrogen bonds played an important role. Nevertheless, the idea was to label DNA with something heavy. I don't think I thought about... Oh, yes, it was deuterium I thought about at the time. And then to uh, label it by growing bacteria or phages in heavy medium, deuterium medium, and then switch the growth to light medium, and then put all of this in a centrifuge and look to see where the DNA went. Up to the top, if you adjusted the density right, if it was uh, all light, down to the bottom if it was all heavy, and in the middle if it was half heavy and half light. 
Uh, that's an oversimplification, but that's the way I thought about the experiment at that time. This was around 1954 sometime. I then went to Woods Hole as a teaching assistant to, for Jim Watson. He had lived at Caltech the previous uh, term uh, in the physiology course. And one day, uh, as a teaching assistant in that course, Jim Watson and Sidney Brenner, who were teaching the course, were in an upstairs room in the building called the Lilly Building at the Marine Biological Lab. And Jim looked through the window and pointed down at a tree under which was sitting a man who was, uh, you couldn't tell from a distance, but he was selling gin and tonic. He had a big jug of gin and a big thing of tonic and some ice and glasses and some limes, and he would sell gin and tonic to passers-by with the profits he could buy some gin and tonic for himself. It was called the gin and tonic tree. But Jim was saying this guy thought pretty much of himself, so let's give him a really tough experiment to do in the physiology class, the famous Hershey Chase experiment done by two people over a period of time, Hershey and Chase. See if Stahl could do it all in one afternoon by himself. Well, I thought that was pretty rotten to gang up on this poor guy. So I went down and introduced myself to him and told him what lay in store for him. And he told me what he was doing in phage genetics and he would be at Caltech the next year. So we agreed to try to do this experiment together ourselves on how DNA replicates when he got to Caltech. I had to finish my X-ray crystallography first before Frank would let us start because he said it would be bad for my character to go ahead and start some new project when I hadn't finished my, my thesis work, which was X-ray crystallography. Finally, I got the X-ray crystallography done and we could start the experiment. Frank and I decided that we should develop the method for doing this, density gradient centrifugation. And so we spent quite a long time, more than a year, developing a method that could separate macromolecules in a density gradient. And to do that, we put in pure DNA into a centrifuge, and turned it on to see what was happening. And to our amazement, uh, a density gradient was forming before our very, very eyes. This was because the cesium ion is quite heavy, quite dense, and it tends to settle to the bottom in a powerful centrifugal field. And uh, diffusion wants it to go back up to redistribute it. And at equilibrium, you have a density gradient in which there's more cesium chloride near the bottom than near the top. And so the density gradient forms automatically. We didn't expect this. We saw it happen. We thought we'd have to make a preformed density gradient in the centrifuge uh, cell. But the centrifuge itself makes the density gradient. So to make a long story short, we grew bacteria in heavy nitrogen medium. And then after many generations of growth so that everything would be labeled with heavy nitrogen, we switched the bacteria, centrifuging them and resuspending them, in light medium and took samples at various times. The first experiment, Frank had warned me I would mix it up if I did both directions at once, that is heavy to light and light to heavy. And I said, no, I would color code the tubes. Uh, I mixed it up completely. So it was unclear exactly which tubes were which. The second experiment, we labeled experiment number one, and that's what we published, along with experiment number two, which was a repeat. And what we found, of course, was that the uh, bacteria at one generation had only one kind of DNA. It had a density halfway between heavy and light. And at the second bacterial generation, there were two kinds of DNA, half heavy and fully light. 
Now we had to write this paper up. Actually, we were rather sluggish in writing it up, and so Max Delbruck took us to the marine lab of Caltech at Corona del Mar and locked us up in a tower room, literally did. Manny Delbruck, Max's wife, would bring us meals, uh, but then lock the door again until we, and there was a typewriter, until we produced a draft manuscript, which we did. But there was a question how to write this up. There were two ways that we discussed. One way is to start with a hypothesis, the Watson-Crick hypothesis, and say, here's a test. We'll do this experiment and see if it works out the way they said it should. And that's certainly one way to do an experiment. And Richard Feynman, who was very close to students in those days, uh, he would come over to our parties and so on, he thought we should write it up that way. The other way would be to write up exactly what your experiment said, no more, no less, without reference to any hypotheses at all, and then at the very end say whether it may agree with some hypothesis. We chose the last way, partly because we uh, thought, well, if you're trying to test a hypothesis, the only way to really be sure that you're going to be right is to know all possible hypotheses. And since nobody can know all possible hypotheses, just because your experiment might agree with one of them doesn't prove that that's the right hypothesis. There could be another one that your experiment agrees with. So it seemed to us more elegant to write our paper up in terms of subunits and only at the end say, ah, these subunits could be the single chains of the Watson Creek, which of course they were. So that's what we did. And this diagram here shows the result in terms of subunits, not DNA chains. What we did was uh, blessed by a lot of accidents. The accident of being at Caltech, the accident of meeting each other at Woods Hole, the accident of having Max Delbruck impress you with his deep pessimism that DNA couldn't possibly replicate the Watson and Crick work the way it does. And finally, uh, the accident of finding out that the centrifuge itself will make a density gradient. You don't have to make a pre-existing one. The uh, effect of this experiment is worth saying something about. When the DNA structure was proposed, a lot of people didn't believe it. And there were not a lot of references to it in the literature for the first several years after 1953. After all, it was based on model building, which doesn't prove anything. It looked so beautiful that some people were convinced uh, that it had to be right because it looked so right. Other people, I think, were convinced that it couldn't be right because it looked too good to be true. In any case, it was just a model. The evidence from the X-ray diffraction was really not very supportive. It showed that uh, repeat distance was a certain distance and that it was helical, but you couldn't deduce any of the details from those early X-ray pictures. I think the effect of our experiment wasn't really a discovery. It was a psychological effect. It made the DNA seemed real. Suddenly you could see bands in a centrifuge that were behaving just the way Watson and Craig said they should. And I think that the main value of the experiment was it had the psychological value of convincing a lot of people that the DNA structure had to be right. Let me say something about that molecule. This molecule essentially gave orders to a whole period in the development of molecular biology. Here's this double helix standing there, and it's saying, here I am, I have two chains, go find out how I replicate. Here I am, I have four kinds of bases, go figure out how that is converted into making proteins. I sit in the nucleus, proteins are made out in the cytoplasm, 
in eukaryotes. Go figure out what it is that takes this information from me out to the cytoplasm. My information being made up of these bases changes once in a while. That's called mutation. Go figure out how that happens. Every once in a while, there's something called genetic recombination. Go figure out how I'm... What I'm trying to say here is that if I showed you a model of, say, a polysaccharide, would it tell you what experiment you should do next? This molecule, DNA, is like the Wizard of Oz standing there, except unlike the wizard, this is a true molecule, standing there and telling you essentially the whole agenda for the future of science for the next 20 years. Now, that's a completely different mood and attitude, I think, from the science that went before it and the biological science that came after it. So that was the characteristic of this time. It was the DNA molecule telling you what the problems were, what you had to go out and solve. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.